Thank you all for praying for us while we were in Nova Scotia, praying for me while I was in Nova Scotia, and had a good time there, good ministry there with the uh, brothers and sisters at Grace Baptist Church and their Bible conference uh, there in, in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, right next to uh, Halifax. I was able to go on Saturday to a place called Peggy's Cove, which is uh, said to be one of the most photographed places in North America. It's actually a beautiful place on uh, the Atlantic uh, Ocean. And so I was able to do that, but it was mostly work. But nonetheless, it was uh, still a profitable. So thank you all. Good to be back with you. Thanks to Pastor Matt for filling in last week when I was not here. He covered session three for us. And so I will remind you quickly as to what it is we've covered, and then we'll get into the material that begins on page 33, session four. But as I do, before I do, I want to call your attention to some things that are coming up. So on the back of your notebook, the very back of your notebook, the back cover has some announcements on it. And a couple of those that I want to point out in particular are this coming Saturday, uh, June the 18th, you see that we have our newcomers brunch at our house. That's at 10 a.m. So for those of you that have never attended one of our brunches, consider yourself a newcomer, even if you've been here a while, and we'd love to have you over. And it is just for us to get to know you and you get to know us. There's no program. I don't go through material, any of that. In the course of that, if you have any questions for me, uh, I'd be happy to try to answer them in that, in that setting. But it's really just a, a get-to-know-you-better session. We would like to uh, extend that hospitality to you to come over this Saturday at 10. We need to know who's coming, though. So put your name in at the uh, information center over here by the windows before you leave today so we know how many folks are, are coming and we'll get a hold of you this week with, uh, with directions and other details, okay? So that's this coming Saturday. One week from today is Father's Day. And on Father's Day, uh, we do at the end of the worship service something called parent dedication. We call it parent dedication instead of baby dedication. It's not a big deal, but it's really the parents dedicating themselves publicly and before the Lord to rearing their child or children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Scripture tells us to do. So uh, any of you parents who, one, have never participated in doing that, or you've had an additional child that you're going to dedicate yourself to raising, then uh, if either of those applies to you, then we'd love to have you participate. But I've got a list of resolutions to which you agree. So it's not just something that you do haphazardly. You've got to let me know. You've got to agree to these four resolutions about how it is you're going to raise your children uh, as per what the Bible says. And if you agree to those, then we would be happy to have you uh, dedicate yourself publicly to that task. Okay? So parents, uh, let me know about that. Send me an email. See me before you go today. Let me know, and then I'll send you those resolutions. All right. And you can see the other announcements that are on your back cover as well. We are in the midst of our series, the title of which is on the front cover of your notebook, also on the screen behind me, What's the World Coming To? And two weeks ago, in session two, after having an introductory session in session one, session two, we looked at the next event on God's prophetic timetable. And we saw in session two that that next event is something called the rapture, that God is going to remove uh, those who are believers, those who uh, belong to Jesus Christ, those who are Christians from the world uh, at a point known only to God the Father and unknown to us and unknown to Harold Camping and all these other, other people okay, who claim to know. And so we don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen at any time, but it is the next event to occur on God's timetable. 
And then after that happens, then there will commence a period of time for seven years called the seven-year Great Tribulation, a very difficult period for the inhabitants of the earth who are, who are here. But if you belong to Jesus, you won't be because of the, the rapture that I mentioned. And that was covered last week in session number three by, by Pastor Matt. So then what happens after that? And that's what we're looking at today in session four. And what happens after that is Christ returns and he sets up, establishes the kingdom that the scriptures speak of uh, in, great, in great detail. So we're going to look beginning on page 33, session four, at the king and his, his kingdom. So let me ask you. Would you describe yourself as homesick? And do you know what I mean when I, when I say that? Are you, are you, do you look forward to the king returning? And to the king setting up his kingdom? And his world then being transformed, literally transformed, physically transformed, spiritually transformed, transformed into what it was made to be. Now, most of us would say, yeah, I look, yeah, that's cool. That'd be good. I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, we really do, all of us, myself included, need to ask ourselves, if I really am homesick for that, the, the environment and the one for whom I was made, if I really am longing for, looking forward to that, then that should, that should have effects on the way I behave now. So, what do you worry about? What did you worry about this past week? Well, a lot of times the stuff we worry about is stuff. Isn't it? And remember what's going to happen with the stuff? The stuff is where that rusts and, and is destroyed and will not be, and will not be part of the, of the kingdom. The stuff will be transformed. It will be, it will be gone. Let me ask you this. You know, we worry about our stuff. We worry about our material stuff. But if we're really longing for home, the, the, that stuff diminishes in value greatly. What about your view of politics? You know, your, your view of politics, actually, is, is altered by virtue of looking forward to a future time. Because you understand that it's not this time. It's not here and now. Jesus said, my kingdom is not, what? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight. But the truth of the matter is, many of us get so geeked about what's going on in politics so that we can save, preserve, quote, our way of life. Am I right? Well, see, friends, that betrays a here and now perspective as opposed to a then and there long view perspective. You know, and I don't know if anybody, I honestly don't know if anybody here does this. So if you do, I'm not saying this because of you, because I don't know. But I do know that there are Christians at large who are in a sort of survivalist mode. I mean, they're, they're packing up for the apocalypse, you know, and all the stuff and the one world government that's coming in and, you know, and what Obama's trying to do, and they're all freaked out about it. And so they're, pack, they're, they're packing stuff, they're packing heat. 
I mean, I've just, I just try to imagine this. I mean, let's suppose this apocalyptic thing that we fear is going to happen and that some in the media get us all jazzed up about. Let's suppose it really did happen. And there was this shortage of food and all kinds of stuff, and you're a Christian. What are you going to do? Shoot people? In Jesus' name? You know, you should have thought about it earlier. You should have prepared like I did. So I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, friends, we say things like, yeah, I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back in the kingdom. But in a lot of ways, we don't act that way. We don't talk that way. We don't live that way. Jesus said, do not lay up your treasures where moth and rust doth destroy. For where your treasure is, Matthew 6, 21, there will your heart be also. I mean, are you living in a way that acts like you're planning to stay here? And if you're living in a way that, is, that indicates that you're planning to stay here, then we can't at the same time say, oh, I'm longing for home. The Bible speaks over and over again of us being aliens and strangers in this world. That the world and its desires are passing away. If you're not following his rule now, what makes you think you're going to enjoy it then? You say, well, because I'll be changed. <laughs> you know, I'll get my glorified body. I won't have sin anymore. But hear this. Those who are going to be changed are according to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. 2 Timothy 4 8. It is for those who long for his appearing. That's what he said. And so I would just say, friends, if we're not living like we love the king now, and if we're not happily living under the rule of the king now and prioritizing our lives around what matters to him now, then do we really fit into the category of those who long for his appearing? And if we don't fit into that category, then we ain't going to be changed. And you won't love the king and his kingdom. Let me put it this way. If you haven't been changed now, you will not be part of the change that comes then. That's a pretty convicting thing, isn't it? I'm good at that. It's my job. You know, but I, I have to do it myself. I have to point at myself when I say this. July 24, we're doing a series in this hour called Get a Life. I encourage you to be here for that along the lines of the theme I just gave. Now, because that's so convicting, I want to just take 30 seconds Let's ask the Lord to help us then, okay? Our Father, we thank you for your truth, convicting though it be, as I look into the mirror of the Word and I see myself there. And I see the things that pop and dazzle and allure my vision and distract me from you and your mission. Oh, Lord, help us to be people who are on a mission and help us to be a people who are working for the king now and looking for his kingdom to come. Surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in his name. Amen.
Take a look at the top of page 33, though. One of the common problems in today's world is the lack of principled moral leadership. While the old saying is true that the world is run by people who just show up, it's also true that once they show up and gain power, power corrupts. As history has progressed, we've seen kingdom after kingdom fall prey to the weak, ungodly leadership of human rulers. Corruption reigns. And yet at the same time the world is led by weak, unprincipled, ungodly leaders, people cry out for world peace. As we examine the teaching of Scripture, we find there's only one person that can bring true world peace, King Jesus, when he returns and sets up his own kingdom. Now, what's going to transpire then for that to happen? We've talked about two weeks ago the rapture, and then last week the seven-year tribulation period, and then at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, there is what you have on page 33, the battle of Armageddon. One of the most familiar events of the end times is called the Battle of Armageddon, and the name comes from Revelation 16, which we have quoted for you. If you look at that italicized quotation of Revelation 16, notice the last verse, verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. And Armageddon then means the Mount of Megiddo. So many people have heard that, Armageddon, the final battle, and they think that that word Armageddon simply refers to the apocalypse, the end. Now it is a significant event related to the end, but Armageddon is actually a place. It's not just a name for the end, but rather it is a particular place at which this particular and final battle will occur according to Scripture. It means the Mount of Megiddo, just outside of Jerusalem. It's a place you could go to and visit. And it is the place that the Bible says the final battle will occur. It refers to, that paragraph, an area northwest of Jerusalem. It's a place where many battles were fought throughout biblical history. In the last days of the tribulation, the kings of the earth will be gathered together against Israel and Jerusalem, and the battle will be fought at that place. Now, in preparation for this, Revelation 16 tells us some of the events that are going to happen. And coupled with Zechariah chapter 12 in the first part of your Bible, you get a fuller picture of what's going to occur with regard to this battle of, of Armageddon. Now, take a look, if you will, on page 34 then, in the second full paragraph. <clears throat> There's no one, or excuse me, the second paragraph. The Battle of Armageddon will take place all throughout Palestine, such as at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is east of Jerusalem, Edom, southeast of Jerusalem, and of course in Jerusalem itself. This area and this battle are called in Scripture the winepress of the wrath of God, where an angel swings a sickle and reaps the harvest of the earth, producing blood up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. It's an image of great war and destruction where the loss of life will be incalculable. Now, just hold your thought there for a moment. If you're saying to yourself, wow, why so much horrific destruction? Hold that because I will deal with that when we, when we close at the end. Revelation 19 describes those horrific events that end the Battle of Armageddon. Describes the appearing of Christ as Christ sees him descending out of heaven with, notice this, with his armies. And we have 
Revelation 19 quoted for you there. And if you look in the middle at verse 14, it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who are these armies of heaven then? Well, remember, there were people who were raptured seven years earlier. And these are people who are now coming back to be with Jesus in the kingdom that he is going to set up that we will see in just a bit. That would be you and me. And these people are dressed in this white linen. And that white linen symbolism is extremely important. I will deal with that at the end of our time as well. This is the same event, page 34, described in Matthew 24 and verse 30. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of all the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then Revelation 19 goes on to describe the end of the battle as the great supper of God. Notice the very bottom of page 34, verse 20. And the beast was seized... And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. During this battle of Armageddon described in Zechariah 12, all the armies of earth will be gathered against Jerusalem to destroy it. But God had promised to restore his people to the special status, to their special status when they repent, and so Israel will not be, and it should not say restored, that word should say destroyed. They will be restored, they will not be destroyed. And here's what Zechariah says in Zechariah 12. Notice down at the very bottom. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God will be at work defending Jerusalem, or excuse me, Israel from the nations around her, bringing Israel to a place of repentance. And then another prophecy of Zechariah will be fulfilled. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now that prediction from Zechariah in the first part of your body, Bible has these two parts. The piercing of the Messiah took place when he was crucified. And that's recorded in John 19, when Jesus was pierced through his side with a spear. And John says, for these things, that is the crucifixion, came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now the looking that will result in repentance, according to Zechariah 12, that type of look has not occurred yet. That is still to occur in the future when Jesus returns and then his chosen people, Israel, Look on him whom they pierced. And that's what we say at the bottom of page 35. The looking is a reference to their looking with mourning and repentance, something that has not yet happened. Now, take a look at page 36 then. In preparation for this kingdom, that's the final battle. And Christ will destroy his enemies, his enemies that have gathered against his chosen people. And having destroyed his enemies, then he will set up his kingdom. 
But the Bible tells us that there's a period of time of preparation for the kingdom and a number of things that will be done in that preparatory period. And that's what we have on page 36. Following Armageddon, there will be a 75-day period in which a number of events will take place in preparation for the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, that 75-day period comes from the passages listed there from Daniel chapter, chapter 12. Now, what will occur during that 75-day period? A number of things. One is there will be a resurrection of Old Testament and Tribulation saints. Now, Old Testament and Tribulation saints, what does that mean? It is people who believed in the true and living God and His promises of a coming Messiah and thus were saved. Believers. But they were before the time of Christ, before the time of the church, and now they are being resurrected. Now, why does it designate Old Testament believers are being raised at this time? Because seven years earlier, there had been another set of believers who had been raised. At the rapture, the Bible says, we who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But it also tells us, those who are alive will not in any way precede those who are asleep because the dead in Christ will rise first. And so seven years earlier, you have had a resurrection, but a resurrection of those who are New Testament believers or sometimes or the church. And the church has been raised, and now those who were believers before the time of the church are raised at the end of this tribulation period, at the beginning of the kingdom in preparation for it. Now when it says there will be a resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation, notice the word saints, that's probably unfortunate. Uh, the Bible uses the word saint to refer to anybody who's a believer. So for those of you who come from backgrounds where saints are sort of superhero Christians, it's not saying Old Testament and tribulation really committed people. It's Old Testament and tribulation people who believe in Jesus. So it's people who believed in uh, the coming of the Messiah in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and then those who came to the Lord during that seven-year tribulation period died and are now being, being raised. So that's one of the events that will occur. A second event is there will be a regathering of Israel. First part of your Bible, Ezekiel chapter 20, this prediction is made. God says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. God has predicted, I will regather my people, Israel, to the land that I promised to them in Father Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Now let me make a few comments about this regathering of Israel. Until then, until this still future time when God regathers Israel into the land that he promised to Abraham, until that time, God's dealings with Israel are on hold. I put that a lot of ways, in abeyance, on hold. We're in that period right now where God was working out his plan through a chosen people and a chosen nation, Israel. And the promised Messiah, promised in 300 ways in the, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, came to his own, says John, in your New Testament, John chapter 1 and verse 12, he came to his own, but his own. The Jews did not receive him. 
and rejected him, as a matter of fact, and participated in crucifying him. So now what? The gospel first went to the Jews as this newly formed thing called the church was created and for the most part continued to reject such that God says, I'm now going to send my worldwide purpose through not the Jews but the Gentiles. And we live in this parenthetical kind of period between when God was dealing with the Jews and Israel, he will again do that. He is not finished with his people, but he is now working out his plan through the Gentiles in this thing called the church. Now, how do I know that? Well, because if you were to look at Romans chapter 11, in fact, take a look at Romans 11 if you have your Bible. If you do not, then just listen as I read. Romans 11, verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Now let me just stop there. As Paul, who wrote this, says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this. I want you to have knowledge of this. I want you to know this. And here's why. I don't want you to become conceited. Who? The Gentiles. And I don't want you Gentiles to become conceited now because God has now grafted you into his program as if now you are somehow better than the Jews. And I certainly don't want you to conclude, Paul is going to say, that God is finished with his people, the Jews. So here's what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant so that you may not become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Now what's it mean that Israel has experienced a hardening. It's a, it's a blindness, a hardness toward God, toward Christ, such that they reject, have rejected and continue to reject Him. Until the time in the future when they will look on Him whom they pierced and will come to repentance. But until that time, they've experienced a, a hardening. But until when? Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And so all of those who are not only who are not merely God's chosen people by virtue of their physical ancestry, but more important are God's chosen people unto salvation. And that is going to include large numbers of Jews at the end when they see the Messiah and realize that he is the one for whom they've been looking and whom they rejected and they will look on him whom they pierced and then they will come to him in in repentance verse 28 as far as the gospel is concerned they are enemies on your account but notice this but as far as election is concerned they're loved on account of the patriarchs now the patriarchs are the fathers people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God made these promises to the fathers that these things are going to be fulfilled. And God has chosen, God has elected to do these things. And so they will transpire, as God has said. They are therefore loved on account of the promises God made to the patriarchs. Verse 29, here's why. God's gifts and call are irrevocable. When God says, I have chosen Israel and Israel, are, Israel is my chosen nation to carry out my work, he has not forgotten that. We're in this parenthetical period. 
And God will pick that up again. At the beginning of the kingdom, when they look on him, whom they've pierced, and then come to the Messiah. And so there will be this now, regathering then of, of Israel. In the meantime, what you see in the Middle East with the nation that is called Israel and that was created in 1948 is not the theocracy of the Old Testament. And therefore, and, and we Americans, we American Christians got to get this straight. See, everything that Israel does is, now is not okay. Now, we think that. We sometimes think that our obligation, given in the Old Testament, where God says that those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. But see, this is all part of his conditional covenant that he made, if you obey and you follow me. And we think then, therefore, that America has a responsibility to agree with everything that Israel does. And we don't. That may be news to some of us, but I'm, I'm just telling you, we don't. It's not okay if Israel does things that are wrong. And if they do things that are wrong, we should say so. Now, having said that, I am very sympathetic to the plight of Israel, not because of some curse that might come upon us, but strictly for humanitarian reasons, if nothing else. They are surrounded by hostile nations. Prior to the 1967 boundaries, after the Six-Day War, as I told you a couple of uh, weeks ago, the, there were portions of Israel that were only nine miles wide. And so Israel is in an extremely vulnerable position, and for humanitarian reasons, if nothing else, then we should have sympathy for the plight of Israel and the Jews. That nation was created as a result of the Holocaust out of World War II anyway. Jews have been hounded for centuries and persecuted for centuries. And so for those humanitarian reasons, I support Israel for the most part. But when Israel's wrong, it's okay for us to say that. All right, page 37. There will be a le leveling, the Bible says, of Palestine's topography. The temple will be cleansed from its desecration, the abomination of desolation that was spoken of in Daniel chapter 9 and was done in the middle of the tribulation by the Antichrist. And the millennial temple and the holy area will be rebuilt. The marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. All of these things are happening in the 75-day preparatory period. And then comes the kingdom. And it's called the millennial kingdom. And the reason it's called the millennium or the millennial kingdom is that comes from a Latin word which means a thousand. And the kingdom is a thousand-year kingdom the millennium. The end of the kingdom, as we're going to see beginning next week, we have what we properly know as, as heaven. But there is the kingdom for a defined period of time of a thousand years, the thousand-year kingdom. Where do we get the, term, the, 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 the duration of a thousand years? Six times. That period of time is given in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. You see them highlighted there. The bottom of page 37, the millennial kingdom is a time when God finally and completely fulfills the four covenants he made with Israel in the first part of your Bible that have not yet been fulfilled. Those four covenants are going to be listed here again now, but we originally explained them to you in session one. 
So if you weren't here for session one or you forgot, I would encourage you to go back to the notes. We list these four covenants that God gave to Israel there, but here they are. There is the Abrahamic and the Palestinian. Even though that's on line one, that's numbered one, those are two covenants. So of the four, these are one and two, Abrahamic and Palestinian. This covenant is first mentioned in Genesis 12, where God promised Abraham he would be the father of a great nation, that his nation would have a land and gave the boundaries of that land, and that Israel would be blessed by God and would be a blessing to others. Now, here's what I told you in session one, and I want to remind you of with regard to that agreement, that contract, that promise that God made to Abraham. It is unconditional. In that, in that covenant that God made with Abraham, he does nowhere say, if you do this, this will happen. God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will give you a land. Unconditionally, this is something that I, God, in my own power and sovereignty, am going to do. It's unconditional. Now, here's why I point that out, top of page 38. The Palestinian covenant, found in the three chapters at the end of Deuteronomy was a natural extension of the Abrahamic promise of the land. God promised Israel that if they, obey, if they obeyed his law. Now, you notice that, the if? That's conditional. He would keep them in the land and give them great prosperity. He also promised them that if they disobeyed, he would evict them from the land and scatter them across the earth. But he also promised he would bring them back in repentance and restore them to the land he had kicked them out of. And so they have not met the terms of the conditional part. Having not met the terms of the conditional part, they have been evicted. They will be regathered at the beginning of the kingdom. They will look on him whom they have pierced, and then they will fulfill the conditional part of obeying God as given in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. And then there is the Davidic covenant, the covenant God gave to David. And that covenant said that God is going to have a descendant of David who is going to sit on his throne, on the, th the throne of David forever. And Jesus Christ has come through the line of David for that very reason. He will be the king who returns then and sets up the kingdom. And then fourthly, there is the new covenant. And this was given in Jer Jeremiah 31. God promised to give Israel true spiritual salvation through regeneration of their heart, forgiveness of their sin, God also promised never to cast off his people, but to restore him to the land that he had promised them. You see that there at the bottom of page 38. These covenants, page 39, must be fulfilled in order to show God's faithfulness. If God does not fulfill them, this is important, friends, he will be shown to be a liar. And therefore, the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God depends on the promises being fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. God has said, you're going to have this land. This land is going to be transformed. These things are going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. The reason I make such a big deal of that at the top of page 39 is there are some who say there is not going to be a millennium. And it's my considered opinion that if there is no millennium, then God has made a number of promises that will go unfulfilled. And God doesn't do that. When God promises something, it happens. Now, what will happen in this kingdom? And we have some of those listed for you on the final two pages. Most important is the rule of the Lord Jesus himself. 
During this kingdom, Jesus will return and rule just as was promised in the Old Testament. This will be a true theocracy, the rule of God on earth. All nations will bow in submission to Christ, at least outwardly, though, now get this, though there will still be inward rebellion that will be judged at the end of the 1,000 years. Now let me just stop there. (laughs) Inward rebellion from who? You're in the kingdom. You've got the king. And you've got people who want to rebel. And at the end of the 1,000 years, the Bible tells us that there will be this time of rebellion. Well, one, that's incredible in itself. You have Jesus himself there. And yet at the end of the thousand-year kingdom, people rebel. Now, I want to explain a couple of things about that. One, that should sober us a bit to the nature of humanity, shouldn't it? I mean, sometimes we think, you know, or you hear people say, you know, if God would just come and, like, show up and talk to me. Well, you know, God showed up 2,000 years ago, didn't he? What did we do with him? We killed him. All right, he's going to show up again. He's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to rule. What happens at the end of that? People rebel. Isn't that amazing? That's the sinful nature of mankind. But it does raise the question, who are these people rebelling? I mean, I thought in the kingdom it was us. You know, the armies have come back, Battle of Armageddon. His enemies are destroyed, so it's all people who are on Jesus' side who are in the kingdom. Who are these people that rebel? This is one of the reasons that I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture rather than a post-tribulation rapture. Now, I know I've successfully put half of you asleep at this point, but you have to hang with me for the next few minutes, all right? What does a pre-tribulation rapture versus a post-tribulation rapture, which we talked about two weeks ago, when will the rapture happen? Pre, before the tribulation, or post, after the tribulation? I believe it happens before. We are gone before the seven-year tribulation period. One of the reasons I believe that is that there are these unbelieving people who made it into the kingdom. And the question is, where did they come from? Well, here's where I believe they came from. That these are the sons and daughters of people who were converted during the tribulation. Do you remember that there were people in that seven-year period, there will be people who come to Christ. And then the kingdom is inaugurated after the end of that seven years. These people were not raptured. These people did not get new bodies. If you believe in a post-tribulation rapture, then they're raptured at the end. They do get new bodies. But because they don't have these new bodies... They're in their natural bodies. They go into the kingdom in their natural bodies and they are joined by people like us who were raptured seven years earlier, come down, we have our glorified bodies, and they don't. And because they don't have glorified bodies, they have kids. And those kids have sin natures. And those kids have kids. And these are the people who rebel at the end of the millennium. Outside of that, I don't know how you explain where these people come from. Only, as far as I know, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, can that work. You say, well, that's kind of weird. There's going to be like us with our glorified bodies, and then there's going to be those people with their non-glorified bodies. Well, you know, this has happened before in history, right? Do you remember when Jesus raised from the dead, he was in his glorified body, right? So here's somebody with a glorified body hanging around people for 40 days who don't have glorified bodies. He actually ate with them. 
So in Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, you have a, a scene that will be played out in the kingdom. And at the end of this time, there will therefore be this sizable contingent of generations who have been born to these folks in natural bodies, and they will have a sin nature, and that sin nature will play out in them rebelling against the Lord Jesus who is physically on a throne in Jerusalem. Imagine that. In the middle of page 39, there's the rule of Jesus, but there's the binding of Satan. Currently, Satan is called the ruler of this world, but during this thousand-year period, he will be bound in the abyss where he will have no influence on people. Now, this is really important, friends. Satan is bound, no influence on people. There's still sin on the earth. Why? Because the devil doesn't make you do it. Sin dwells in the human heart. And this puts the lie to the constant emphasis of the prosperity gospel people, the TV evangelists, who are constantly saying, it's the enemy who did this or that. Hear this, the devil is God's devil. That's a quote from Martin Luther. And he can only do what God allows him to do, and no more. And he will be bound but there will still be sin active. Why? Because the devil doesn't make you do it. It's in the human heart. And what will life be like in the millennium? Well, you see listed there all these marvelous things that will happen in the millennium. World peace, end to sickness and deformity, justice for all individuals, and on it, and on it goes. This is a time that can only be ushered in by the king himself. It will not be ushered in by America. It will not be ushered in by the United Nations. Despite the fact that outside the United Nations building in UN Park, there is, a, there is an en engraving. In fact, Larry, you've seen it, right? Larry Holslander, you've been there, you've seen it. With a quote from Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4, that they will beat their swords into plowshares and men will study war no more. That's a prophecy of the millennium, a prediction of the millennium, the kingdom. The United Nations thinks it's going to bring that in. Fat chance. Only Jesus is going to bring that in. And then there will be this final battle then. Satan will be released for a short time to go out and once again deceive the nations into rebelling against God. These nations once again fall prey to the lies of Satan, gather together thinking they can defeat Christ. And then that's the final destruction of his, his enemies. Now, I'd like to conclude then at the bottom of page 40. The millennial kingdom will be the time of world peace everyone is looking for. We must also recognize that world peace will never happen until Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom. Until then, sin will continue to increase. Humanity will continue to show their sinfulness in greater and greater ways. But thanks be to God, there is still good news even in these dark days. And the good news is this, the king loves to pardon rebels. And he purchased their pardon with his own life when he died on the cross for their sin. Now, do you remember I said, just hold your question about why all of this bloodshed and all of that at the Battle of Armageddon, I'll get to that at the end, we're at the end. 
Why all of this bloodshed? Why all of this carnage? Friends, the reason that scene is so ugly is because sin is that ugly. And a holy God will not tolerate sin. Sin must, must. God doesn't just choose to punish sin. He has to punish sin. He is constitutionally incapable of just overlooking sin. Sin will be punished. The question then is, will it be punished in you by you taking that punishment? Or will you receive the punishment that God the Father meted out on God the Son on the cross? You see, that's a more horrific picture than Armageddon. That God has come in the flesh and borne the sin of all mankind. And yet, just like those who will rebel against him when he's physically there on the throne, many today say, I don't need that, I don't want that. And reject him. He offers pardon to you now. Because he took the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve on himself on the cross. And when we receive that gift that he offers, the wrath of God against sin is satisfied because it has been paid in Jesus. Thanks be to God. He offers that to you. If you reject that, you will pay for your own sin. And it will be a horrific payment indeed. God in love loves to pardon rebels. Further, remember I talked about the robes that the armies had? That's my last point. When you come to Jesus Christ, God the Son, acknowledging that your sin deserves punishment and you can't pay it, and believing that he died to pay it for you, when you do that, not only is the payment that Jesus made given to cover your sins by his blood, past, present, and future, but not only does that happen, but his absolutely perfect life that he lived when he walked the earth is applied to you as well. So that God now looks at you no longer through your sin, but through the righteousness of Jesus. He clothes you with his robe of righteousness a robe that has been washed clean by his blood. And these people are coming back to earth with these, with these robes that are white and linen and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, showing that they are righteous, not because of themselves, but because of the righteous one. And now they belong to him. And they belong to him because of him. And so, friends, he offers himself to you. He offers himself to you in love to pardon you as a rebel, me as a rebel. Jesus died to take the punishment you deserve. He lived the life you should have lived, but none of us have. And he offers it to you as a free gift. You have to have the humility to say, I cannot do this myself. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve that punishment. I believe Jesus paid it. I ask you to save, rescue, deliver me, Lord Jesus. And the Bible says he or she who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, rescued, delivered. We're going to pray. 
And I encourage those of you, like myself, who have come to the Lord Jesus and been saved and delivered because of His mercy and His grace, to thank Him for that. Perhaps we need to confess all the stuff that I was talking about at the beginning of this hour, that our focus has been on the here and now rather than the then and there. And thank the Lord that He has given us something larger to live for than just the stuff that's here. And those of you that have never come to Christ, will you do that right now? Come to Him as He offers Himself to you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these reminders from the authority of Your Word, not the authority of Ken, but the authority of the Word of God that You have given us to instruct us about who You are, about what You require, about what You are doing and are going to do in Your world in the future. Lord, I thank You for saving me, delivering me, rescuing me. Lord, you did that for me even though if I compare my life and how you've protected me to others who have experienced the ravages of sin in ways I did not, I still needed the same thing everybody else needs. Even though I grew up in a pastor's home in a relatively sheltered environment, I still needed the Lord Jesus Christ to cover my sins. My so-called goodness is nothing but filthy rags before you. Because you are too pure to look upon any sin. You are absolutely holy. I cannot, no one can stand before you, save God the Son, the perfect one, our high priest, the Lord Jesus. I needed his payment for my sin. I needed his perfect life applied to me. Thank you for saving me. Every person here needs that same thing. Grant them by your spirit right now the humility to admit what their pride has denied to admit that they cannot stand before a holy God and that they need the righteousness and the payment Jesus supplies. Draw them to yourself, we ask you, gracious Lord. Right now we ask you that there would be people humbly coming before you, acknowledging their need of the Savior, and you always fulfill your promise that he who calls will be saved. And Lord, those of us who have come to you, Lord, forgive me, forgive us of our complacency. When we so easily get distracted from you and from what you are doing in your world to all of the other lesser things that compete for our attention, help us to be reminded of what we have in the Lord Jesus and what we will have when he comes in his kingdom. And in the meantime, give ourselves always and fully to the work of the Lord. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you and glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.